Welcome to Dallas. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. So this, this comes from some walks I've done with God, some of my readings and writings. I, I'm, I'm going to just say up front what I believe strongly. I really believe what we're going to do together this summer, what we're really going to launch into in a few weeks as our summer series, it might be the most important series we've done to date as a church, like, like for our futures and for our real connection with God. Like in everyday life, the ability to experience him, encounter him, open our lives to the voice of God, actually be able to walk in expressing good and beauty to others in this world that's just so messed up and so divided and so much going on in this world that creates stress. I believe we could be stepping in personally and as a church family this summer into the ways that we actually encounter God so that the expression of our lives are just more beautiful. Uh, so as a setup, I, I'm actually calling today part one, even though we're not going to really dive into the, to the crux of the series and for a few weeks. I'm going to set up for the next couple of weeks. Today, next week, maybe the next few weeks, I'm going to be setting up where we're going. And then for the rest of the summer and possibly into early fall, we're going we're gonna to spend our time on what I think is going to just open us up to the reality of who God is and who he wants to be in our lives, okay? All right, so last week, Kaylee Eglin and I, during breakfast, she, she was with, uh, had a friend here with us from high school. They're both in band, and we, we just got into a band conversation. They were telling me the instruments, that her, her friend plays saxophone, and I was like, I was in band in middle school, and they were like, you were? And so I told the story that I'm going to tell you. This just kind of reignited this in me. I, I was in, uh, so I graduated in Winchester, Frederick County, Virginia, from the largest graduating class ever in, in the county. And soon after I graduated, they built another county school, then they built another county high school. And so when I was in high school, it was just the entire county. Our middle school marching band was was you know, larger than normal, and so I was a trumpet, and I don't, I've told people there were 21 seats, there were at least 19, let's say there were 20, I was trumpet seat number 20, and for those of you who understand how bands work, you're seated in order of excellence, and so we got this, this one particular day, um, we're going through all of our parts and the pieces in this in this song, and we get to the trumpets, and Mrs. Gibson's like, "Okay, seat number one," and the trumpet, you know, just played um, beautifully, and trumpet number two did, and we get all the way to seat number twenty, me, and it's just it's just horrendous. It's just it's like, Brad, do you even know that you're holding a trumpet right now? Kind of, you know, it's just it's just terrible, and so. <clears throat> In middle school, I didn't understand this about Mrs. Gibson or about people or human nature, but as I got older and as I told the story, as I started working in jobs and working for people and then leading, it, it clicked with me, Mrs. Gibson hated conflict. She's just super sweet, super nice. So it made sense to me when I looked back on that day where she's like, you know, I play my piece. And she says in front of the whole band, hey, Brad hey, I, I want to talk to you after class today. Stop by my office after class today. And I'm like, 
I'm looking around, you know, like, <laughs> she wants to talk to me about something. So I go into her office, and she says, you know, our, our band is so big, and we've got every instrument you can think of. We don't have a baritone. We do not have a baritone section. And so I learned that a baritone is like a larger, it's larger than a trumpet, kind of sits on your lap. And it's, it's not as complicated as trumpet pieces. It's, it's just sort of a simpler uh, instrument. No offense to you baritone players. You know, it's just, uh, so I'm like, I go home and I tell my parents, I don't know why me, but they've chosen me to start the baritone section. She was like, I just think you would be. So <clears throat> I start this, you know, playing the baritone. No joke, I'm not kidding you. Like two months later, we're going through all of our pieces, trumpets, and then we get to the baritones, and there's three of us, and I'm seat number three, and I play my part. If you call it that, it's just terrible. And she does it again. It was, it was like deja vu. She's like, hey, Brad, I, I, I've got an idea. Stop by my office after. So I stop by, and she's like, um, we got all these instruments. We don't have any tubas. There's no tuba in our band. And I, I think you would be the one to start the tuba section. And I, I, you know, I'm in middle school. I went home like, me? I told my parents, I'm, I'm going to start the tuba section. And so <clears throat> a month or two later, we have our symphonic holiday concert on stage. The auditorium's packed with parents and grandparents. My parents and grandparents were there. And this is when it really hit me that how embarrassed I was. I was, I was embarrassed. I felt left out. All of my classmates, all, the whole band is playing this music that I, I think sounds really good. And I'm sitting there with this tuba on my lap. And my, everybody's playing, and I'm just watching the music, waiting, waiting, because my piece, my part of the song, somewhere in the middle was like a boom, boom, boom. And that was it. And then I sit there, and I know everybody in the auditorium is just watching me just sit while the whole rest of the band is playing. And it's the first time I remember in my life feeling humiliated, left out, like everybody's having fun, everyone's doing something together here. The, you know, the audience, it's moms and dads and grandparents, so they're cheering after every song. Everybody's, you know, like they're super proud. And I'm sitting there with the, the, the sense that, but this doesn't include me, because I'm playing like four notes a song. And when it counted, when it really counted, I wasn't ready. I wasn't practicing. I hadn't been practicing. I had always chosen, not, not with sports, but when it came to music, and I love music. I love music to this day. It's actually a big part of my life, uh, Amy and me both. But I, I ch always chose other things over practice. And when it mattered most, when I was on stage, when family members are there, when people are ready, we're rehearsed, this is our performance, people are ready to cheer, it showed that I didn't practice and I didn't care about it. And I regretted it. There's so much focus in, in the world of faith on belief. Depending on how long you've been in church, uh, 
you know, maybe even just your perception of church, we just hear a lot about belief. John 3, 16, Jesus says, you know, for God so loved the world, he sent his son, whoever believes. And so we have this concept that belief is what matters. As long as we go to church, as long as we hear and we believe the right things, that's, that's it. That's the life of faith. Faith, Jesus teaches us, is actually putting into practice what we've come to believe. That's what faith is. Faith is not accepting something cognitively. It's not a mental acceptance of a fact. Faith is actually practicing what we've come to believe. Now, this may sound like heresy to you, or maybe this isn't exactly right, I am more convinced than ever that Jesus didn't care that you believed the right thing in order to get into heaven someday. That is not what, when you look at what Jesus taught, when you look at what Jesus challenges you and me into, what it, what the, the life that he's planned for us, he did not care about us believing something that would automatically allow us entrance into some kind of eternity or, or future. Jesus cared about us practicing a new way of life that would transform us, you and me, and would transform the people around us. It would transform our world. Jesus wants us practicing what we believe, what we've heard, what we've come to accept is true. Even if it's right now just probably true. Something that may be probably true to you, this is starting to connect. This is actually making sense. When you step, when you act on that probable truth, is when this world of activity opens up. It's when the reality of God opens up to us. It's, it's as if we're meeting him. He's meeting us halfway in us acting on what we believe. When I met Amy, Amy and I met in a wedding. And I was just immediately, a, a mutual friend introduced us, and then, you know, afterwards we were seated together, you know, at the reception, and we just started chatting and laughing, and I, I, I just, I, she, she seemed so nice and caring and interested in other people. <clears throat> if I hadn't acted, if I had just believed, wow, she's really nice, or I'd really like to get to know, she's somebody I'd like to get to know, and I just believed that. I went home believing that, and then the next week, I'm remembering, yeah, I met this girl last week. That I, I just know I'd really like to get, to, but I don't actually act or step or say, hey, would you like dinner? Would you like to get coffee? You know, there's something that opens up for us spiritually when we step, when we speak up, when we behave in a way that matches what we believe. What is it about procrastinating? What is it about putting off the very things that make us better or, or sharper or closer or more successful? And, you know, I'm going to use the word happy. Not that happiness should be the, the goal of our lives, but there is this desire inside of us. It's human nature that we want to be happier. We want to be better prepared. Why do we, why do we put off or procrastinate sometimes the very things that help set us up, that prepare us for the conversation we need to have. 
We understand this in America, in the Western world. We understand this about college. We understand this about education and money and earning income. We have this high value on doing what needs to be done to prepare for the income we want to earn. Why do we not see this when it comes to spiritual health? Why, why is it not ingrained in us that when it comes to actually putting ourselves in a place where we can hear God's voice, we can recognize God speaking and prompting and directing. God is not silent. Regardless of what you believe or maybe trauma or what's happened in, in, in your life, in church experiences or faith or maybe how faith has hurt you, maybe how you've been treated or mistreated, Regardless of those things, God is not silent. It is you and I that need to be positioned in a way, we need to act in a way that opens up our heart and minds and lives to the voice of God. And I think for a lot of us, we, we just grew up, or our perception in society is that I, I go to church and I listen to encouraging messages, and I, it, it reinforces what I believe. And then I'm prepared to go out into the world. I'm, I'm prepared to go to work on Monday. I'm prepared to be a, a neighbor. And it somehow makes me a better person. It's so much easier to put off spiritual health. When it comes to spiritual health, when it comes to positioning ourselves so that we experience and encounter the reality of God, it is easier to put off spiritual health than it is to put into practice who God wants us to be, who he wants you and me to become. So in this series, and we're going to get into some particular practices that are important in my life. Uh, some of you have gotten to know Rudy. Rudy and I have had coffee together uh, quite a few times talking about this. This is a particular interest of him, his. And we've just been kind of outlining together what are the major practices that really open us up to the reality of God, to encounters, to the experience of God. This takes us to Matthew 7. Okay, so... Matthew 7 is the very end of the most famous sermon ever, ever preached. Jesus has just delivered what we know to be the Sermon on the Mount, and this is how it ends. So the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. This is the last couple of paragraphs of Matthew chapter 7. This is the end. This is how Jesus sums up this counterintuitive series of, you want real life? You want to know how to walk in real life? Well, here in my kingdom, in my realm, in walking and living in my presence, this is how you think about enemies, about people who mistreat you. This is what relational health looks like. And it's just, it's so counter to what we have been taught in the world. And it's, it's, it's so inspiring and compelling. And the audiences we see at the end, they're just, the, the, the crowd is like, this guy is unlike any other teacher. I mean, it's not just wise. There's power in his words. That's how they respond. And this is how he ends. This is the last, last portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. If you spend any time around here at Dulles, if you've been with us any length of time, you know that we talk about this text a lot, these words of Jesus a lot. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished these Saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as someone who had authority and not as the other teachers of the law. If we could go back, Sean, if we could go back to verse 24. Why does Jesus not say, which is what we're inclined to believe? And if I had kind of surveyed you coming in the door today, hey, what does Jesus say about hearing his words? A lot of you, a lot of us, I grew up in church I, from, as a kid. I probably would have said this, you know, short of really focusing on this text and where Jesus really repeats this idea. I probably would have said, oh, well, what Jesus says is everyone who hears my words is like a wise man who's building his life on rock. Why does he not say that? Jesus does not say... Everyone who hears my, everyone who listens and hears, listens to and hears my words is like a wise person building their life on rock. That's not what he says. I think it's what we assume or what we think maybe we heard scripture say. Isn't that how we tend to live out our faith? Jesus wants us to go to church and listen every week to encouraging words, to truth to facts, to logical teaching about who he is. And obviously, learning and knowledge and belief are important to us practicing and acting out and behaving in a way, of course. But we tend to stop with the dissemination of information. What's important is truth is spoken. I'm reminded of the words of Scripture. And that's not what Jesus emphasizes here. It's clear what his emphasis is. He, he stresses it twice. It's about practicing, building your life, building your relationships, building your future, building the impact of your life, which we're all craving. We all want to matter. When you build and construct your life, there's a wise and there's a foolish builder. Both, by the way, hear his words. That's what's assumed here. What's assumed is anyone who's building a future that has any semblance of meaning, they're hearing my words of life. The question is, are you the wise person who's building on rock because you're practicing what you hear, what Jesus teaches, what Jesus is modeling? The truth is we live in a world you live in a world, and maybe you practice a lot of what our world practices, what our culture practices. We live in a world where we practice, we're taught to practice. This is dramatically magnified in social media and in our media news today. And by a lot of neighbors and by people who've been hurt and people who try to protect themselves. And I believe our society has learned this. And yes, here where we live and in America and in the Western Hemisphere and maybe just the globe on planet Earth. We have become accustomed with practicing every week 
everyday things like anxiety, defensiveness, reacting, defending ourselves. We practice things like escapism and blaming. We get into habits. A lot of it is subconscious. We don't realize that we're practicing setting our minds on, training our minds, rehearsing in our thinking what might go wrong. I talk to people a lot. I have coffees with, you know, a lot of you and a lot of, just a lot of friends and people in general who are trying to change and get out of the world of fear, just the cycle of fear. And when I, when I get into their daily life, and I don't mean like they go to work and what kind of car do they drive. I mean the way they think, the way they look at the world, what I often hear is a mental rehearsing of what might go wrong. There's so many people today who've experienced the trauma of divorce, the pain of divorce. They are genuinely frightened of marriage, the idea of marriage. It's like, I, I, I don't want to jinx, if I meet someone, the last thing I'm going to do is think about marrying them because it, it's like we associate past pain and we rehearse when we've been wounded by a friend. When you trusted someone, a friend who betrays you or hurts you. It is so easy for us, of course, of course, to put our guard up, to protect ourselves. But then we start practicing what it is to live a guarded life, a guarded heart. Not only do we rehearse in our minds the perpetual what might go wrong, I think we rehearse in our minds, we're taught to do this in the world we live in, uh, to think over and over about what's wrong with us. We rehearse controlling conversations, controlling circumstances, controlling what others think of us. We practice over and over talking rather than listening. I mean, our list here, you know, we could go on and on about, I could ask, you know, what, what are the kinds of things we, we could be here for an hour talking about what we actually practice, the kinds of behavior and thinking that we practice. Our synapses make connection through cycle and rehearsal. Through practice, through repetition, we become creatures who behave near automatic. Without consciously understanding, I'm going to live Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, in almost complete fear. I'm going to be fearful most of Tuesday. We don't wake up deciding, you know, I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to be afraid most of the day. Afraid of the future, afraid of what might happen at work if I speak up and talk to my boss and have that hard conversation. But we do live these perpetual experiences because we rehearse them. And Jesus understands this and he knows that we were wired to be people who walk in creativity. We live out the image of God. And this is a spoiler for where we're headed. I don't want to get too far in the weeds. I'm going to actually talk more about this next Sunday. But um, I think a lot of us have an image of eternity and heaven 
that if I, if I can just be kind of raw here and just, just say it, uh, that, that's just rather boring. It's just a boring view of heaven. And I'm going to ask you next week. We're going to start. I, I believe it's next week. I'm going to start with that question and just hear some of your feedback. How do you picture eternity? Like what we're doing. What, what are we actually doing for the first 10,000 years in heaven? What do you see us doing? We're going to have that conversation so you can think about it all week, okay? When we understand why we were actually designed, what we were made for, it's a lot more exciting. When we actually look at what God says is the purpose of our lives, we're, we're much more motivated to want to practice the way and behavior and truth of Jesus. In the garden, at creation, in the beginning, we were designed to, to create to lead, to perpetuate the image of God. This is, this is your ultimate role. And we chose to warp the image of God into our own selfish control. And it's just left our world in just ravished in chaos and hurt. Jesus calls us to practice the image of God. And so he sent the perfect image of a human. He is... God is committed for the long run to human beings looking and sounding and behaving like him. Living out the image of God. And so he sent Jesus, the perfect human. The perfect image and voice of God. God's presence and God's thinking and God's worldview. And God's heart and his love. And he sent him not to start a religion and not so that we just have some more personal, nicer, religious figure to bow down to, he sent us the picture of who we are to practice. James, uh, th this, this is not going to be on, your, uh, on the screen, but James, just one verse in James, and you can note it, um, James 1.22. This is one of the many, many places. James, who is largely believed by scholars to have been Jesus' brother, his half-brother, who doesn't follow Jesus or believe that he's the Messiah until after the resurrection. Isn't that an interesting thought? He ends up being willing to die for his faith. I mean, what brother, what half-brother would give up his life for his brother if he doesn't believe this is the one, he's actually the Messiah? And James writes a letter in the New Testament to the church, and he says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. This is the second time this morning we've read the word fool or foolish. In Matthew 7, the foolish builder. The man who builds, the person who builds foolishly, Jesus says, here's my words. That implies they go to church a lot. They listen. Even take notes. But the foolish person who's not building a future that's going to matter and last and be a, a safe house and harbor for people during storms, that person, the foolish person, just doesn't practice what I'm teaching. And now James is using the word fool. If you only listen to God's words and not actually do what they say, you're just fooling yourself. You're, 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 you're interpreting yourself as more religious rather than more related, more connected to our source of life. There's so much focus on belief. It's about belief. It's about learning. The Western world is so built on education and knowledge. 
Jesus did not come here to convince you to believe something that would get you into heaven. He came here to change the way you practice your life so that you begin living out more of the image of who God is. Andy Stanley, uh, we're connected to Andy Stanley's church in Atlanta. Uh, we're, we're a North Point partner church. And um, Andy talks about what faith is and what faith isn't, I think, as well as anyone. He wrote a book uh, years ago. I, I believe this came out of Deep and Wide. I should have sourced this better. I, I'm pretty sure in his book, Deep and Wide, he says this. In church history, we've replaced follow me with believe me. We've been teaching and emphasizing throughout much of church history, that what matters is believing in Jesus. And of course, believing in him is the, is the start. While belief is easier, Andy says, faith is actually following and practicing Jesus. Okay, uh, uh, just w- one more point this morning. This is, again, part of our setup to where we're headed later this summer as we dive into this. Putting into practice the heart and way of Jesus places those around you closer to the reality of God. This isn't just about you. Ultimately, your design and wiring and the way you live a fulfilled life and satisfied, truly happy about who you are and your future isn't just about your own encounter and experience with God. It's about how you relate him to others. And as you practice the way of Jesus those around you will, will, will be connected more to the reality and activity of God. So the question becomes, do you practice him? Are you committed? To, is this something you want to learn? Like instead of just knowledge, are you interested in joining the rest of us, all of us, joining me in living a life? Not, our goal is not perfection. Our goal is not a life where we don't make mistakes. Our goal is practicing more and more, stepping further and further into the life that looks more and more like who Jesus is. You and I are not asked, I'm going to read this section here that I wrote. You and I are not asked or called by God to make our faith about religious traditions or political agendas. This is so much about what the Western church is aligned with today. We walk into church... And I'm, I'm saying we, meaning the collective last few hundred years. Maybe, maybe you could go back 600 years. You could even look at a large part of the last thousand years. Never has it been more dramatic, I would say, than today in our lifetimes that the Western church is aligned. We think this is right. And by we, I'm not including Dulles because we don't believe this. But the, the church world believes that what's important is we walk into a church gathering and we, pr- we practice our traditions, the songs, the, the specific experiences in our once-a-week gathering that make us feel like we're rooted in the past. That can be important. But when it becomes our primary or and or we... We live out, we practice our political opinions and agendas. And it's just not life-giving. These are churches that are slowly dying. The Western church is slowly diminishing. Not because Jesus has lost power, but because we're not practicing Jesus anymore. The world who's desperate for connection, who's lonely, 
We've never, America's never been more lonely since COVID, at least in our lifetime. I mean, we live in a lonely world. People are craving genuine connection. It's not that Jesus doesn't connect us to a future that is pulsating with life. It's that for the, lar- for, for the large part, the church is focused on politics today. And stating loudly what we believe is best for our country. This is what the Pharisees believed. So much so, they conspired to kill Jesus. If you want our world to change, if you want our world to become more beautiful, if you want our world to experience actual peace and actual unity and beauty that inspires, then our question becomes, are we practicing the way of Jesus? Are we becoming practitioners of who Jesus is? The heart and love of Jesus. I wrote that practicing Jesus inspires, attracts, and changes people and communities. Talking about him does very little. And it eventually turns talkers into lazy, opinionated, and irrelevant religious people. That's what talking does. This is interesting, I think. This has uh, been something that I when, I, when I think about this topic, and at times when I brought this up, I've ref, uh, referred to this. Three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, repeatedly tell of an argument, an ongoing argument that's happening with the disciples. The 12 disciples of Jesus who are in training, disciple means one who practices the way of another to become like him or her. The 12 disciples have this ongoing, intensifying argument among themselves about which one of them is actually the greatest disciple. And in this context of the Last Supper that we have paintings about and when we share communion, The last thing we think about is arguments. The disciples, again, get into an argument about who's the greatest disciple. And this is what we read in this scene. This is John's account of this, okay? The Last Supper, John 13. It's ironic. The disciples are arguing about, hey, someday in in eternity with Jesus at the great feast, because Jesus has painted the picture, in eternity we're going to be feasting. There's going to be amazing wine and laughter. This is what fellowship, friendship with me is going to look like. It's the picture. So the disciples are arguing, in that feast, Jesus, someday, I believe I'm going to be seated closer to you. And they're arguing about this at the Last Supper. And it's ironic that going into the Last Supper, there's no servant at the door to wash the feet. This is, this is very customary in Judea. In Jesus' day, that a servant stands at the door, kneels at the door, and washes the feet of those who are the guests who come in. There is none. There's no servant the night of the Last Supper. So Jesus shocks them and becomes the servant. When he had finished, this is John 13, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place, said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. This is what the lowly, no-named people do. They wash the poop and pee and dirt and grime off of the feet of the guests so that they're worthy, they're clean to come in for dinner. Jesus becomes that, that servant. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus became the foot-washing servant. And then the point, he finishes in, in verse 17 with the point that you and I must do the same if we're going to be connected to him, if we're, going to be, if we're going to walk out real life. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed. Blessed is that Old Testament word that means to offer a gift while kneeling. That's what blessed actually means, to offer a gift while kneeling. You will be blessed in living out life, real life, if you do what I'm modeling. So this summer, and I'm going to invite our band to come close us here. And I'm I'm going to today, the next few weeks, I'm going to challenge you to kind of consider some things, start behaving, start acting in a way that really sets all of us up for where we're headed this summer. Okay. Okay. So here's here's the first. This is the first Sunday of June. Pastors and churches everywhere dread this month. It's the beginning of the nosedive in church attendance and church giving, and people just kind of check out in the summer. There's articles written about this and books written about it. And when you go to pastor meetups, this is one of the dreaded, dreaded things that, you know, pastors talk about. And I just want to say, when, you know, when you vacation this summer, have fun. When you sit on the beach, put on sunscreen. And just, just have fun vacations and breaks this summer. We break more in the summer. We take long weekends a couple times and and get away. Have fun. But don't vacation from God. Don't make the association, we're taking a break. We're getting away. We're going to pull back a little bit. Don't do the same thing spiritually. Instead, dive in with us. If you're traveling, if you're out of town... Use our podcast. We, I mean, our podcast is being listened to by more and more people. It's usually posted by Monday, the next day. This message you can listen to generally within 24 hours. Prioritize it. I grew up in a home where my dad would say, hey, guys, remember cassette tapes? He would pull out the cassette tape from church put it in the tape player in the car, and we would have to sit there and listen to our pastor while we're driving home from the beach, like, what? You know what? That, is, that was so boring for me as a kid, and it, it, it was actually life-giving. I watched my dad model that, hey, we went to the beach. We went away. We, we did these fun things, but I am not going to detach from God's words and what our church is doing together and what he's Doing in us is a movement together as a church. So don't vacation from God this summer. When you're in town, prioritize this series together. We're going to become practitioners and practice and experiment with what living out the way of Jesus actually looks like. Connecting with him. All right, if you don't know where to start, like, man, I just I feel so empty or I've been disconnected from God. Read one of the gospel accounts this summer. Read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Maybe read two of them. Three or four. It's okay if you run into questions. Write your questions down. All right, before our band closes us here, I'm going to pray two verses from Philippians. 
okay? And this will be on the screen. And if you want to screenshot this um, and pray this throughout the week, you're welcome to join me. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Paul says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Set your mind on these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, Paul says, whatever you've seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen.